1: Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. It was just having that fear of this big, dark shadow coming into your room. It's like, who, who's going to believe these little girls? He used to always tell us, no-one's
2: going to believe you. Yes. It was the fact that he had held every single one of them in his arms, as babies, and then went on to hurt them in the way that he did. He had no empathy towards anybody or sympathy towards <coughs> anything. He was just a monster.
3: I'm Nicola Talent. And you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals, drugs and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. He was a towering Ulster rugby star who won four caps for Ireland in the mid-1990s and went on to forge a political career as an ultra-conservative unionist. After his death, on October 28th last, in a motorcycle crash in County Antrim, Political pals and friends from the Orange Order were amongst those to pay tribute to Davy Tweed, describing him as a giant of a man and a larger-than-life character. But in recent weeks, Sunday World journalist Hugh Jordan has uncovered the truth about the real Tweed and his secret life as a predatory paedophile who terrorised his family and sexually abused his daughters. Today... I'm joined by Hugh, along with three of Tweed's courageous daughters, Amanda, Catherine and Victoria, who have waived their anonymity to speak out about the monster behind the legend. This is a Crime World special, a podcast from sundayworld.com. So Hugh, can you tell me who... Was Davy Tweed?
0: Davy Tweed was born into a farming family outside the county andrum village of Dunloy, and he was a huge frame of a boy and a man. And uh, he was partic- became particularly well known in in rugby uh, that was very popular uh, around that area and in, in Ballymoney particularly and uh, Balamina, and later he played for both, both those clubs as, as a younger man. But he, he was a powerhouse of a, of a rugby player and was immensely popular with the crowd as a result of his physical size. He was six feet, uh, six feet, six tall, and all the bulk to go with that. Mm. And he was obviously a very robust rugby player. Um, and he played 30 times for, for, for Ulster and uh, which he, he saw, uh, he later played for Ireland uh, he was the latest ever debutant to play international rugby so very late in his career he became an Irish internationalist but in, in Davies Mind he saw playing for Ulster as a much more important thing. Apparently he said to people, "Yes, I played thirty times for my country, and then I played a handful of times for Ireland." Mm. So that that was Davy's outlook on. Which leads you into his politics, really. Yeah, well, yes, he he was steeped in the County Antrim Orange Order tradition, and uh, he was a member of his local Orange Lodge in in Dunloy. And it was uh, it was a, a police uh, objection to that lodge marching through Dunloy, which uh, catapulted Davy into uh, politics, and he later became uh, a councillor for the Democratic Unionist Party. He there are great pictures of him with the Reverend Ian Paisley, who was also a big man at that time, <clears throat> and he represented. Uh, his, his ward on Ballamina Council. Um, as, as tensions developed in the north towards the signing of the Good Friday Agreement, he was a supporter of Paisley. But when Paisley, uh, he appeared at Drumcree, for instance, and he had also appeared in the early 90s at Harryville, uh, there were objections to the, the Catholic community uh, going into Mass. There, as a direct result of what was going on in Drumcree, and uh, But it was uh, when Paisley opted to go into government with Sinn Féin, uh, Davy Tweed took a harder stance and supported the breakaway party, the, the traditional unionist voice, and he was elected to the council on that ticket as well.
3: So he sounds to me like a guy who would have been on the back pages of a newspaper, and on the front. It he was, was a sporting personality. Yeah. He was a political personality. He would have been somebody that was known by anybody on the street.
0: Yes, and photographers would gravitate towards big Davy Tweed. That's what he was known as. Mm. He was he was known as Davy Tweed. And if he said something, well, it was worth hearing, you know. So mm. he, he had this popular image. But clearly, there were two Davy Tweed's. Mm. Because as we later found out through two uh, high profile court cases and uh, since he died a few weeks ago in a, in a motorcycle accident uh, the full story has emerged that there was uh, at least two Davy Tweeds. One was this public figure of the former rugby player and champion of unionist politics and secondly a serial Pedophile who was prepared to use extreme violence to get his way.
3: Mm. And Amanda, Catherine, and Victoria, um, I'd ask you the guys the same question. Maybe start with Amanda. Who was Davy Tweed?
4: Well, um, initially, um, my mum's partner, and he later then became my abuser. Um. He would sexually abuse me fairly regularly. Um, He was also very physically violent towards my mum. I have many memories of her being quite badly beaten by him. Um, Yeah, he he wasn't, he was never...
3: He was a monster. He
4: he was, yeah. I've I've seen him described as a a gentle giant and he was not that Mm. ever... Um, I can remember, I recall, growing up walking on eggshells. Um, you would not have spoken to him in the morning until he spoke to you first, so you could try and gauge what sort of mood he was in. Um, the slightest thing, he would fly off the handle about, and it was always my mum that got it physically, mm-hmm. um, in terms of the fists. Um, and, you know, until later on, I he never was physically violent with me, but he was very much so with my mum. And the slightest thing that we could have done wrong as children, it was taken out of my mum.
3: Um so, you were four when your mum met Yeah, him. yeah. And do you remember her being excited by meeting a partner or anything like that? Have you memories of...?
4: I don't really have many memories of the beginning of that relationship. All I remember is being scooped up and taken from Belfast and moved to Balamoney. And I never, never was happy there. Mm. Um, and part of that was in relation to the behind-the-doors life that was being lived. Um, even from a young age, I never I was never happy there. And any opportunity that I had, I would go and stay with my granny in, in Belfast because she was my safe place.
3: Mm. And you were only about six when he, you know, when when this...
4: I, I don't have memories as young as six. Mm. Um, my memories begin slightly older. I do have memories from being around six-ish of having what I would describe now as night terrors. But um, after speaking to some of my other sisters, I'm not entirely sure whether they were actually night terrors. Um, I just would recall waking up very panicked um, and screaming as loud as I could with no noise coming out, but feeling very much pinned down. Um as I say that, like I would describe that now as night terrors, but I, you know, given what I have been through, I'm not entirely sure whether they are night terrors and have maybe been. There's part of that that I have blocked out, but the emotion and feeling of it, that I haven't.
3: Mm. Or this was a real thing that was happening to
4: you. Yeah, mm. um, but my first real memories were from when I was around eight, nine. They're my first like real memories that I can clearly piece mm. together.
3: Hmm. And you told me there a little while ago, and it's sad to think back to that child, you know, working this out in her head. But when you were about 11, you said you thought you'd change your name to Tweed in the hope that he would recognise you as one of his own daughters so he'd stop doing what he was doing to you.
4: I did not for a second think that he was putting his hands on any of my younger sisters in that way. And I asked if I could have my name changed to Tweed in the hopes that he would see me as one of his daughters and leave me alone. Mm.
3: I think that's really sad for that child, working that out and the innocence of believing that this was just because he saw you as different.
4: Yeah.
3: Um, did your mum, she was suffering a huge amount of violence
4: yeah. from she, him. Yeah, she was.
3: And... Um, how long did this continue for? When did you move out of the house?
4: i I moved out whenever I was about twenty-six
3: mm-hmm. is when
4: I officially moved out of the house.
3: Now you're a bit good bit older than yeah. the girls here, not to yeah. in any way insult your age. <laughs> but um so you had younger siblings who were significantly mm-hmm. younger than you by, you know, up to ten and plus years. Yeah. Um when you moved out, were they still small children? Was your mum still having children?
4: Um, uh, she had finished having children at this stage that I had moved out. Um, the youngest was around five or six at that point. Um, when I had
3: moved out, so. And did the abuse uh, that you suffered continue until you did move out? Um, no,
4: I think it continued up to a point where, cause I can, I can remember, um, when my brother went to the army, um, I moved into his room and that's when it stopped for me, mm. um, because my room was directly opposite theirs. Um, then after that, the, the house was renovated and I ended up moving into a room upstairs, mm. um, and I never... You know, he never come up there. I had a lock on my door. Mm-hmm. So I did. So, and I locked my door when I went in. I made the excuse that I wanted to lock my door to stop my younger sisters from coming in and touching my stuff. But the lock was to keep me safe while I was home. Um, I can remember um, an occasion when I was standing... I was in the shower. I had gone into the bathroom. I hadn't been in the shower yet, but I could hear him right outside the bathroom door. Now, there's a wee, there was a wee crack in the bathroom door, so there was the slightest wee crack... And I can remember hearing him standing outside the bathroom door. And I'd have been about, I'd have been in my early 20s at this point. Um, and because I could hear him, I, I turned the shower on. Um, but because I could hear him, I didn't get into the shower. I didn't get undressed because I was aware that he was standing out there looking at me. And I opened the bathroom door and he, he jumped out of his skin um, and stuttered over himself and walked out the back door then Um, and I sort of just looked at him and walked in. My mum was sitting in the bedroom and I had walked in and just sat with my mum. I didn't say anything to her at the time um, because, again, I was frightened of what he would do if I, I spoke up. But, yeah, I can remember going in and sitting with my mum and then coming back through again. And, and he was coming back in the back doors. I was coming back through to go for my shower. And he was like, oh, I, I was just going just going out the back. And I just looked at him and I went, no, you weren't.
3: Hmm. Was he different then? Was he a bit more nervous of you as you became older? Was he a bit more?
4: He, he would have been. Now, it, it kind of broke. Um, he was very intimidating, has always been very intimidating. Um, I have always been particularly frightened of him. Um, I can remember outside my work, I worked in Balamani at the time um, of this whole court case and, and the, that one in 2009, i i been working in Balamani. And he used to stand, It was that I had given my statement after that, that I had learned about other people and the guilt of hearing about other people it, it, that's what led me to go to the police. Mm-hmm. I wanted to stop him from hurting other people. Um, but after I had been to the police, he, he arrived around at my house and threatened me with paramilitaries. Um, and he used to stand outside a bar opposite my work and glare at me whenever I was coming out of work. And I felt massively intimidated, massively. Um, I was frightened of what he would do to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and at that point, my mum had a non-molestation order in place for him, against him. But I didn't have anything. I didn't have anything protecting me. Um, and there was one day I was just like, I've had enough of this. I can't live with this anymore. I can't deal with this anymore. And I cracked a joke because I was standing with my work colleagues. We were all locking up. And I'd cracked a joke. And as they laughed, I pointed over at him. And um, they looked, naturally, because I had just pointed. They didn't know what I was pointing at, so they didn't. But from that moment, the intimidation from him stopped. Um, he, I didn't see him outside my work again after that. That was, that's what stopped it.
3: He sounds like a coward.
4: Very much so. Mm. He only picked on, like... Children. Uh, children, yeah, and women.
3: And vulnerable women. yeah.
4: Yeah. Um, smaller men in bars, he would have picked on them too. He has, he has, he's been up on uh, charges as well before for fighting with people, assault charges he's had, and it's always smaller men um, and vulnerable women and children. Do you know, he's, he's he doesn't like being outsmarted either, or he didn't like being outsmarted, and I think at times my my intelligence as well threatened him because I would just there were times I would just. Mm. Do you know, this is
3: the way it is. And Catherine, growing up, did you obviously were all terrified of your father in the house. Have you memories of him, of similar to Amanda, that he was this terrifying figure that you had to walk on eggshells around?
2: Yeah, definitely. Um, he just wasn't nice at all. Um, but everyone used to glorify him. So we just used to go with the facade and smile and act upon it. It's like, who's going to believe these little girls? He used to always tell us, no one's going to believe you. So he used to buy our silence then.
3: I was going to ask you about that when you went out with him. Were you aware that he was this very famous figure, very well known and and sort of a, a glorified sportsman?
2: Yeah, well, he made sure when you... He he gloated in it and he loved it and there was a painting of him, a caricature painting of him in the front hall in his Ireland gear. So he was proud enough to hang that in the hall, wasn't he? Mm.
4: There was a photograph of him too,
2: playing. Yeah, there was a photograph of him playing for Ireland. He was holding up for the ball at yep. the time. In the line-out. Mm. As well, Ireland kit on there too.
3: And would you have had to act in a particular way outside the house when you were with him?
2: Definitely. We had to be on our best behaviour. We were warned we would get murdered, and I believe we would have. Um, and if I acted up or said something he didn't like, I got the brunt of his anger when I got home. Um, he did. He, he was physically violent towards me as well as the sexual abuse. Um, I've been under his fist quite a few times. Um, my mum never knew it, though. Mm. because at the time he would never hit the face, he would always just hit your body, make sure there was no marks, you know, visible marks
3: on you. So did he take you, he, he always assaulted you when it was a private moment, he wouldn't have done that, you mean in front of the rest of the family?
2: No, he's physically. he was physically violent in front of Victoria as well. Okay. There was one occasion I remember on holidays. Yeah. Just so happened, Amanda was walking around the corner at the time and seen it all. Um, Victoria has witnessed quite a few, but I would. And what would
1: spark his anger? Anything. Anything. As little as the light switch to if we wanted to watch the TV, you know, but he wanted the sports on. But it was like an incident where I wanted to watch a family film where we'd all actually sit down together and he wanted the sports on and that just kicked off a whole other thing and he'd ended up fighting with my mum. He'd ended up beating her and then ended up beating my sister as well just because I wanted a family movie. Mm-hmm. So just the small, sweet things would have set him off.
3: Were really you terrified of him?
1: yeah because Stan on watching how he could physically hurt her, you know, it could the same could have happened to me. You know, I'd only been hit once. One memory, I was remember him being physical, but other than that, it was Catherine got the brunt of it all.
3: And he was a huge man. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Powerful.
1: A mountain.
2: <laughs> he was just a mountain of a man. He was just... In, he wasn't light with his fists either. And I remember one day... Victoria actually witnessed it, um, he, he he was hitting my head off a radiator, he had me lifted with the two hands hitting my head off the radiator and um, Victoria was screaming at him and he goes get up to your room after he threw me to the ground, like physically threw me to the ground and I was crawling up the stairs laughing <laughs> Um, and asked him was that all he had, and is that actually all you have? And he he just stood there, completely dumbfounded. And I go, "It's a little girl against you." Went well done, and I clapped him. And I continued to go up the stairs. And I went, "I hope you feel proud. I hope you feel proud." And that was it. That's when he sort of started to lay off me with the physical violence, because I was just I'd had enough then.
3: Mm. And do you think he felt anything? No. Did he have any empathy?
2: He didn't have any empathy towards anybody. He, he was concerned about how he felt mm-hmm. constantly. He could not see how he, anything would impact anybody else aside from himself. He just did not have that in him. If he had, have, he probably would have been a better dad, better man, maybe even a man in general, but no. He had no empathy towards anybody or sympathy towards <coughs> anything. He was just a monster.
3: And Victoria, like the other girls, when your father started to sexually assault you when you were only a young child, did you think it was just you?
1: Yeah, I did think it was just me. Um, so I did, but I had the fears and all as well. As I explained, I was like a shadow, the dark shadow in my room. And for years, I don't like I blocked everything out, Um, and everybody would say I was in my own wee world. I was in my own bubble. Like, I just blocked everyone out, but it was just having that fear of this big dark shadow coming into your room, like a monster, and just sexually abusing you. And as I'd said before, what just played on and on in my head was, and now, was finding out all this here was he'd done this prior to me, and so he'd done it before I was even born to know that he was holding me as a baby and knowing that he was going to hurt me. that That's your little baby child and you're going, I'm going to hurt you. And just, I still can't fathom it to this day.
4: Mm. That's something I struggle with. Do yeah. you know,
1: whenever, and it was part of the guilt as
4: well, whenever I'd realised that they had all been abused, it was the fact that he had held every single one of them in his arms, as babies, and then went on to hurt them in the way that he did. And the reason why I never, ever spoke up um, was to protect them, not realising that I was helping facilitate him and enable him to do what he was doing.
2: But you weren't exactly helping him. And it wasn't your fault. It was his fault. He done it to us, not you. I knew that, but it's, yeah. And he had us all completely living in fear in a complete state of fear is what we've been brought up in, so No, and look, I get that and I've had counselling and we've spoken and we've discussed all of that
4: but it's still, you know you're my younger sisters so part of my
2: job as a big sister is to protect all of you and I didn't And part of his job as our father was to protect us and he never did Well, he wasn't my, my father, so to speak so I can't really I know, but he was ours I know, I
4: know, but that's it's it's that knowing what he was and thinking that he wouldn't have done any of that on any of yous and that realisation then that he had done. And that whole time, instead of protecting you, I was protecting him, realistically.
1: Well, you don't know what the outcome would have been. You had the fear, the fear of what he was going to do to... Mum to the rest of us, the same way Kat had that fear of what he was going to do to Mum and the rest of us, you know, and it was the same with me, what she was going to do to Mum and the rest of us. So we've all went and went through that fear. You're not to know that he was going to do that to the rest of us.
2: Only he knew. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, and only he could stop himself, but he didn't. I don't know, it was
3: a choice that he made, It wasn't it? But anyway, um, yeah. Hugh, how... Does this picture of this monstrous man, you know, the dark shadow in the room, in the corner of a child's room, coming to sexually abuse his children one after the other, how does that tally with what the outside world thought of Davy Tweed?
0: Well, well, it doesn't, Nicola. It, it, it can't. It's, it's, the, it's the, the mirror opposite. But in my... Experience, uh, and which is why I decided to get involved in it. There was a, a serious danger of the the legacy and reputation of Davy Tweed just being big Davy Tweed, the great rugby player. And this horror that we have heard in the in the last few minutes from the the Tweed sisters is uh, was going to disappear. So he he did. He was capable of commanding loyalty from a section of the community who held him in high esteem right until he was put into his grave. Uh, they, they turned out, uh, not in their droves, it was a small enough funeral, but there were, there were people who are public figures who said nice things about Davy Tweed. And they must have known that the reality of Davy Tweed wasn't as a unionist politician. It was as a paedophile, Mm -hmm. a serial paedophile who put these young women through a horrendous uh, life experience in their own home.
3: And when we say they must have known, in 2009, two of his alleged victims came forward and he was tried but acquitted for the offences. And in 2012, Amanda, you were one of a number of victims that came forward and same allegations were made. And this time you had to give evidence. Yep. And you had to go through all those, those awful memories. Yep. Um, and you stood up to him. Yep. And you put it up to him. And you were believed and yes. he was convicted.
4: Yeah.
3: And at that time, he was named. That must have been a huge scandal at that time. Um, but, of course, you tell me what happened.
0: Well, well, it was, and uh, everyone thought, well, there you are, he's been sent to jail for eight years, he had to serve four, and then come out, uh, serve the rest unlicensed, my, my recollection, and he would be on the, the sex offender's, uh, register for life uh, but a few days before those four years were up he, his defence team successfully managed to catch the narrowest window, window for, for an appeal based on what the judge had done in addressing the, the jury and it was the narrowest of, of margins and he was released from, from jail that day. Uh, the, 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 there could have been a second trial, mm. but uh, if my recollection's right, the girls having discussed it uh, decided that when they discovered he wasn't going to serve any more time, they decided it wasn't worth their effort of going through the the, the stress and strains of another trial. So that, in its own way, assisted this myth that he was somehow uh, wrongly jailed in the first place. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I could hear people saying, I'm sure that that conviction was quashed. Uh, and then, so that people don't know the reality or, the, or they choose not to. Know. So he was kind of reinstated mm. as a human being. Even after he he died in this motorcycle accident, uh, and it was only the the seven days between him dying, and the girls speaking out and telling the world having the the bravery to speak out on their own behalf that there's no comeback for Davy Tweed now. Mm. Everyone knows exactly what Davy Tweed was.
3: Mm. Amanda. That must have been devastating for you when that happened with the with the conviction on the appeal and essentially because of how a, a judge addressed the jury. They, they just... Like, the emotions that would have gone in the first time to give that evidence and, and everything, I mean, you must have been just devastated when I he was, walked free. Um,
4: I have to say, whenever I went... Um, to court initially I was not expecting to get a guilty verdict I was going into that with the full expectation that he would walk away because that's what he does Um, at the time I had nicknamed him Teflon Tweed Um, and I can remember sitting with my barrister on the very first morning of court and explaining to him that this is how I felt and he says, well, my barrister at that time had said, um, I'm not going to lie to you. I'm not going to pretend that this is going to be easy because it's not. And it's their job as his defence team to cast the tiniest element of doubt on your on your statement. And that's all they have to do. Well, you have to prove that you're telling the truth. Um, and he told me on that morning, he was like, don't worry about it. The truth is easy. And that's what I carried with me throughout that entire court case. When I was struggling, the truth is easy. And still to this day, it's something that rings in my ears frequently. Um, so to get initially that guilty verdict, I was shocked because I thought he would get away with it because he's got away with so much already. Um, he, even after he was convicted, there were still people who were calling us liars and they weren't people who were related to him. These are just people who don't know him just random people. Um, those those girls must be lying. Those girls are just doing that, just to do him down. Um, and it's, do you know, it wasn't that at all. But to hear that and read that at that time was difficult. Do you know, what we had been through and was throughout that court case wasn't easy. Court These court cases aren't easy. They're not made easy for the victims at all. Um, and so, yeah, to hear that afterwards was difficult. And then the four years later, when we were kind of bracing ourselves for him to get out of court, out of jail anyway and the potential that we could run into him,
1: mm.
4: we were preparing for that to then hear that it was quashed. It was as if it never even happened. It was like all that trauma, and it was trauma of the court case, that mm. it was as if it never happened. Um, and we were... We did discuss whether or not we were told we could go to retrial and we were told if he goes through, if it goes to retrial and given the fact that it's such high profile case, you may not get a conviction this time. And if you did, he's not going to serve any more time anyway. Mm. So, you know, you have to weigh up the trauma that you went through. Are you prepared to go through that again? Are you in a place to go through that again Um, for no real outcome? Do you know, mm-hmm. the only difference it would have made would have been he was on the sex offenders register for life, um, but it still wouldn't have stopped him.
3: Now, a couple of things in 2009, when the first allegations were made, your mum, Margaret, put him out of the yep. house and yep. he never returned. And nope. she severed her relationship with them and has stood by you all yep. um, since and has believed you. And that doesn't happen in every family. Um. And secondly, just to observe that in 2016, when he got out, uh, he was still quite a young man. He was only in his 50s, his mid to late 50s. So, you know, this wasn't a kind of an elderly person coming out who was all of a sudden vulnerable and couldn't be a threat to anybody. He was still a fit, big monster of a man.
2: With, with a lot of anger, held in anger for being inside, so. Yep.
3: So as well, that made him even more. Now, I naively, Catherine, asked you earlier um, in in 2009 and, and Victoria, you were still only 11 and you were about 14 or 15. In 2009, when he was put out of the house, I kind of naively said to you, was that the end of it? It wasn't, of course. He continued to terrify you.
2: He's terrified us right up until his death without us even realising the control and the hold he had over us. And it it wasn't until he died we we realised that. And I think we all felt the same. It was tragic in how he went, but we could breathe. It was like a weight was lifted off our shoulders. We don't have to be scared of him anymore. And that's when he got humanised for me. I realised that this man was dead. Do you know what I mean? He wasn't, if I had used my voice at the time, like Amanda has the regret, that's my regret too, not
3: using my voice. Were you afraid you'd run into him on the the street? Were you afraid that he was going to come to your homes?
2: Definitely. He was a very angry man, very angry, intimidating man. Mm. And after that, yeah, I was scared.
3: And were you scared of the support he was still getting from elements of the community and the fact that he was obviously still able to convince people that he was?
2: Yeah, reading online, um, I remember some of my friends forwarding me things, telling me that I wasn't allowed down in Cork because his family was seen as supporting him. So that automatically put myself, and obviously my sister was down, it, it was, you were sat in the fence Constantly, people didn't know what way to approach you. Mm-hmm. We believe the girl is Your dad's a dirty paedophile, and I've had stones thrown at me.
1: That's why I've had it as well.
2: Calling me a paedophile supporter, and I had to run. Mm-hmm. I was running, and that was hard because I wasn't. It was happening to me, mm. but I couldn't tell people that at the time. you've been through
1: the same? Yeah. I have. you have had people standing, they're calling all the girls, not liars. And so you go, no, oh, he was a good man. The girls are liars. And it just got, well, for me, it got to the stage where I just turned around and I looked at him, and I says, you call me a liar? Because that was me. was happening to you? This is when I was older. When the reality and you know, all hitting, I remember one time standing in the bar and somebody... And Balm, when I turn around, says that all, that all them stories about your father, they're just they're just lies. Whoever's saying that, they're liars. And I just look them square in the eyes and he goes, you call me a liar? And their whole character just changed and their face had dropped. But it got to the stage where I wasn't going to stand back and turn around and say nothing no more, you know, and that's when I turned around and accepted that, no, you know, because if you're going to say this to my face, I'm going to put you straight on what's happened. You just couldn't take from it what you want. But the whole being younger when the first court cases and that come out, same happened to me. Pedro's daughter stone thrown at me. I didn't want to be in money by the time I was sixteen, I'd moved up to Belfast to do taking all up here because I didn't want I didn't want to be in money I didn't want to be around people that was well known and was idolising them. Mm-hmm.
2: It was hard in the town because you had the half that believed, the half that knew it was your family that was coming, well, your sisters that was speaking out against him as well. Mm-hmm. And the other side, it was just... No answer,
1: the ones you worshipped the ground they walked on, basically. Mm-hmm.
2: So even after that, you had to be careful in what you said and who you said it to and how you acted still. Because mm-hmm. everything still got back to him believe your girls were up to this, your girls were here this day, did you know this? It's, he didn't need to know our life, he wasn't a part of it. It's like
1: when we used to go to the youth club and i sure he'd always been. The youth club was next door to the bar that he used to stand outside. Yeah, he always used to make sure he was in the bar the night that we were up the youth club was open. It was always there.
3: Just reminding you he was still around?
2: Megan, his presence constantly known and felt. He was very good at that. But it's like I said, the the older we've got, the more you realise that when you outsmart him, that's when he does get scared. But it wasn't actually hard to to outsmart him because he wasn't a smart man. He was manipulative and he was deceitful and deceiving. He was able he was evil, but pen on paper, he was not smart man.
3: But fear is debilitating, and that's why it's used.
2: He was very good at that, very good at that, and he knew what he was doing, and he knew how to do it. And that's how he got where he got.
4: Even after I moved to Belfast, it took me a long time to begin to feel safe. Knowing that he didn't know my address just wasn't enough because of the people he knew and the connections that he had. <laughs> Um, I just, like, I would never have went anywhere. Couldn't even go to a supermarket on my own without fear that I would run into someone that knew him that would and I would get back to him where I was. It took me a long time before I, would, I, I felt safe. Mm. I think the first time I actually probably felt safe was whenever he was in jail. Yeah. I and
2: mean, that was a relief for us as well. It was like when we were there... It, me and Victoria were there at the end of the court case. Now, we didn't go into any of the, the rooms. It was just the day of the verdict we got in. And the day of the sentence, and we went down to. He asked us, he asked myself and my sister Victoria for character reference. Mm-hmm. He rang us and asked us for character references
1: for him for court.
2: Yeah. So we told him we are not being brought in, we're there to support our, our sister and the other victim. And um, if he mentions our name, we'll be there. And the day that he mentioned our names, it was the first day that we were
1: actually down at the court together. Me and Victoria were actually outside the court. Because that was the last time I spoke to him on the phone, was when he'd asked me for character reference, and I laughed. So I just laughed down the phone, and I said, well, I'll let people know what you really are, if you want. Never spoke to me since. Because the cheek, even the cheek, to even turn around and ask, knowing full well, <laughs> obviously what he'd done to me, and then to ask for a character reference to support him for against my sister and the other victim, it's like really, it's some nerve. But
2: he did. He had a brass neck because even after everything, he moved back to the place that, even though we didn't feel it was our home, he moved back to. Our hometown. Yeah. Where else are we meant to go? Not just that, but he,
4: he bought a house which was at the end of the avenue that of we, the house the family that we home? lived in. At the end of the street, directly opposite it. That's and I, I was like, well, it, it's just it, It's the intimidation just never mm. ended
3: with him. Never ended.
4: No, and he knew his presence alone was intimidating. He knew he didn't have to do much, he didn't have to beat his chest. His presence alone was intimidating, based on what we experienced and seen as children.
3: And Hugh, what happened to Davy Tweed?
0: Well, he was... <laughs> he, there's a, the part of County Antrim Davy Tweed was from, There's a great... Motorcycle tradition, everyone apparently is capable of handling motorbikes and the bigger the the better, but come along with that, comes great danger. And I mean, I didn't know Davy Tweed, but a 61-year-old man of his size and bulk getting on a powerful motorbike wouldn't have seemed the wisest. Thing for, for for anyone to be doing but David Tweed in his own invincibility clearly thought uh, that, that he could handle it and he was on the motorbike and whatever manoeuvre he made uh, he, he couldn't handle it and there was no one else involved, he caused the accident that killed himself and you have to think there was an element of arrogance in whatever he did on the bike that day but there was no one else. And, uh, and I found it interesting talking to the girls that they, the first thing they wanted to know was was anyone else involved in the accident. And when they learned that, that there wasn't, it was only him himself, then they were relieved.
3: Mm, I can imagine. Mm. So it, was,
1: asked, it was. Was anybody else in the accident? Like, was anybody involved? Because I didn't want somebody to feel that guilt. Mm-hmm. Because if there was, I says I would go and I would find out who it is, and I would approach them and turn around and say, you know, thank you. And you know, I mean, as horrible as it sounds I would have just mm-hmm. so that they weren't feeling guilty. See, now I just
2: I was more relieved because I didn't want Davy having that hurt and hold over somebody else anymore. Because they would, they would still have to live with that hurt and guilt, even though he caused it. It was still his hurt and guilt that they would have had to live with. And now that he's gone, that's the end of it. He can't do it anymore. And once we're all gone, that's it.
3: I know every death takes a while to properly the reality of it to sink in, but um, I'm sure you know it was a sense of. Did you find yourself sort of sinking back into a, a place of comfort?
4: Absolutely, it brought me great peace. It just brought me so much peace to know that what we tried to do in the courts, tried to do with the legal system, we didn't get, and it took it. I knew after the court, and I says, we are not going to get peace until he's dead. And this is the way our life is now. We're not going to get peace until he's dead. And um, when I learned that he had died, I just had a great sense of peace, uh, knowing that, number one, he couldn't hurt any of us anymore, but also, more importantly, that he couldn't hurt another child again. Mm-hmm. There wouldn't be another wee girl that would have to grow up and deal with the mental illnesses that we have had to deal with as a result of the, the sexual abuse and the physical violence.
0: And I, I think that something that's worthwhile saying is in his public life, I mean, we've spoken about the, 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 at least two Davy Tweed's, but in his public life, clearly the, 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 the zenith of his life was playing rugby for Ireland, and you can't take that away from him. But what was interesting is last Saturday when Ireland played Japan, there was no minute's silence for Davy Tweed. As far as the Irish... Rugby Football Union was concerned. No one was remembering Davy Tweed because I keep speaking about these seven days and what these young women did. In those seven days, the real Davy Tweed came to the fore Mm. and he wasn't going to be remembered by the people that he had become most famous, connected with.
3: Because when you read back on the reports of just the last few weeks, it starts to the kind of narrative starts with this, you know, great rugby man. player, this great man has died. And and obviously some politicians, including uh, Ian Paisley, Ian Paisley Jr., Mervyn Storey and Jim Allister, had quotes prepared. And in them, he they sympathised greatly with the loss to his family, which I'm presuming he's talking about yourselves as well as the wider family. Um, and they they described him as, uh, you know, as a great man. And um, I mean, that must have been, you know, you, you have this sense of relief um, that he's gone, but all of a sudden you've got to wake up again, don't you? Because this guy has been remembered for something that he isn't.
4: I was quite insulted. Um, and that's what kind of inspired me to actually go with speaking with with Hugh about it because I felt insulted and I've had my day in court but the rest of them haven't. Do you know, there was more than just me. The rest of them haven't had their day in court. The rest of them haven't had their opportunity to face him and there has been a part of me who has always hoped that one day he would... I I always hoped that he would die old um, or through some sort of illness that he would decide that he would realise he's coming to his end and would admit what he had done and give the rest of the victims peace and that opportunity to move forward because he has admitted and apologised for what he had done. But that was taken away from us and then he was glorified again. And it, it it was insulting. It was insulting. And... As much as it hurt me, it hurt me on behalf of the rest of the victims who haven't had the opportunity to face him and say, who did this? You know, what? why are you not? Where's your apology? There's never been an apology, mm. ever. Um, like, he just he threw out, maintained his innocence, even after he'd been jailed, maintained his innocence. Um, but that was, again, the type of person he was anyway after he had beat my mummy, he'd throw her into our bedroom, push her into our bedroom and, and make her tell us that she deserved the beating that she got. Do you know, and, and if he had hit Catherine, it was, you know, uh, uh, it, I was just disciplining her and she's exaggerating about, the, you know, how badly she's hurt. That's, that's the kind of person he was. Do you know, it was always someone else's fault. It was never his fault and he never did wrong. So, yeah, whenever you were seeing this rugby hero, it was insulting. Mm -hmm. It was hurtful. And I was like, no, for the rest of the victims, absolutely not. He doesn't get to die that way. He does not get to to live on in people's memories as a great hero. Like, yes, he was great on the pitch, but the, the thing that I don't understand about all these people who glorify him is the fact that he got where he got because he was aggressive on the pitch. Do you know, so... How do you not believe that he was such an aggressive, abusive man behind closed doors? Even when he admitted that he physically abused my mother, even when he stood and publicly admitted that, why are people still thinking that he's such a great man and, oh, no, he would never do a thing like that? He said it. It came out of his own mouth. And that's just the physical violence that they're talking about that they don't believe he was, never mind the sexual violence and the sexual abuse. It's just, it's, I I genuinely don't know where people's heads are at when they talk about how great a man he was and how they think they knew him. Particularly these politicians, you know, they're bound to have seen a glimmer of it in him because he didn't keep his mask on all the time. He couldn't have kept his mask on all the time.
3: Mm. In a way, you've all had to give some more of yourself in order to set the record straight. Yeah. You've had to, you know...
2: Well, even after Amanda came out out, they, they were still glorifying him to a good degree. Um, and that's when we decided, like, this is our sister here. We're, we're his own flesh and blood. Do you know... But she's our sister. We were all brought up as full siblings. Do you know? It was there was never any difference made. We didn't find out until we were up a bit. Um, but this is our sister. They were still doubting, and they were still questioning this this good man. So no, he wasn't. He done this to his daughters. I'm his DNA. I can't change that. We used to choke and say to my mum, please tell us you had an affair. Mm-hmm. Honestly, we were saying to my mum, please just tell us. Mum wouldn't have because he had her beat that bad. The woman didn't leave the house. And if she did leave the house, we were like little ducklings behind her. She couldn't go out without one of us. And I really highly doubt these politicians are taking into consideration as victims in their statements. It's not like this is this has just come out right now. That's
1: what I it don't was understand. Twice. It was yeah. in
4: the news twice.
1: Do
4: mm. um, you know, and it's it's the fact that there's still, it was in the news twice and there's still. 2009,
3: 2012. Yeah. 2016 when he got out. Yeah. You know, it's still there yeah. in the It was Epoch. still you can choose to believe that because of the, you know, the, the appeal, the little window that it was opened in the appeal if you want to you can stand and say oh he was innocent to the end but really people must have known and like you say it was local knowledge
2: it wasn't something in round balamoney and it wasn't unknown it wasn't unknown to who we were it wasn't unknown that we were victims ourselves to a lot of people but they just still turned a blind eye because in a sense his supporters and the support he had round there, and the people following him, turned their backs on us.
4: Yeah, because he was a big
2: rugby player and a political
4: activist, and sure, we're just us. Do you know, we, we don't we hold any sheep. weight for anybody in terms of people who are maybe hungry for their own fame or whatever. Do you know, so there are people who will jump on his coattails. You know, if the rugby is political situation. But, you know, why would you believe us? We're just we we're just girls.
3: And because you're telling the truth.
4: Well, yeah. You know, and I, I'm... This, this, I have found this quite liberating, I have to say, to be able to stand fully in my truth and speak it publicly. Um, at the time of the court case, I was ready to speak then because I didn't want people not knowing the face behind the person who was making these allegations, as they like to mm-hmm. call them. Um, and I think that's what made it so easy for people then to say, oh, he's innocent, these these people are lying, this person's lying, because there wasn't a face, there wasn't a name. So it was easy for them to say,
2: no, Big Tweed's fine, Big Tweed wouldn't do a thing like that. And because everything was so publicised as well in our lives, so it was difficult Even the court cases, when we went for um, a sentencing, it's like we couldn't go out the front door ourselves. We had to go out the back. We had to go out the back door because the press were there, there was people shouting abuse, there was his supporters there, Mm -hmm. you know, that was just constantly at us. So it was just like, well, what do we do? Who do we do? They were wanting a face. And because we were there supporting the other victims and that was just automatically pinned on us, then it was just like, oh, who are they there to support? They're there to support their dad or... Who? What are they doing there? Mm-hmm. But it wasn't even in the courtroom. We were being called liars by supporters of his. Mm-hmm. And I did. i I just lost someone. Well, we had all lost someone very, very important to us. Mm-hmm. Um, And my emotions were extremely high. And... Just the whisper in behind me and Victoria were standing hand in hand, and the whisper in behind just lying bitches. I went, just like that. Me and her just went, it's automatically our shoulders went down. say, no one, still, still to this day, why does no one believe?
1: Or even on a sentencing.
2: We're standing here waiting for his sentencing. It's not to be found guilty or not guilty, it's his sentencing. You've been found guilty, and you're still being called a liar. I just took it personally. I went, "What did you say?" And that was it. Just I don't know what what was said after that. I I just went and I just remember the judge shouting order and us being sort yeah, of the ushered out. Brought us out, us all out. They'd split us all up, and then they had to separate Davy Tweed's supporters and the victim supporters because they thought it was okay to put everybody in at the
1: same time, sort of in the same place together instead in the two
3: separate sides. And does being able to speak out now and, you know, tell your truth, does that, do you feel empowered?
1: I think it's just been able to tell, well, for me, it's been able to tell my story. It's hiding away for so long behind the shadow of this monster, this big idolised man. You know, we've always hidden the shadows and now we can come out and tell our story. You know, I find it for me, liberating to be able to stand and turn around and say it, and plus it's also been able to maybe help other people, be able to turn around and help them come forward and, you know, no matter what, that they're not on their own, you know, that we're able to speak about it so they can come out and they can talk about it, and there's people out there that will support them and will have their backs, and, you know, it's just one of them things that we... Or Well, I'm hoping my story is going to help other people with their stories too. Yeah. That's the one thing for me. This is the thing. that I've challenged a couple
4: of people, actually, who have spoken out on social media about how great he was. And I've challenged a couple of them. who, who you, They have no idea who he is. They only know him through the TV or the newspapers or whatever. They don't know who he is. But there they are defending him still, um, off the back of some of the stories. And I've challenged a couple of them in saying that do you know if this if this me if i was your sister your daughter your mother your girlfriend and you're publicly defending somebody who you don't know as not being the pedophile that they are you're sending a message to those people your family the females that are in your family the females that you're supposed to love and care about you're sending a message to them to let them know that should that happen to them you're not going to believe them and you're not going to support them so I get anybody who maybe is in disbelief that have met him and they've met the personality that he presented to them. I get that some of those people who know him won't believe what, what he's done and that that's fine because he was such a manipulator. He was a great manipulator. Like at the end of the day, he, he had manipulated my mother and had kept it hidden for years from her as well. Um, like my mum obviously didn't know that he was, abusive physically with her until end of the relationship, but she had absolutely no idea. But once she heard, she was out. But these people that are saying, that don't know him, have no idea who he is, that are saying, oh, he, he would never do a thing like that. That's that's all lies. That's, that's not okay. It's not okay for them to say that because that's the message that they're sending to their families. That's the messages that they're sending to their daughters, to their sisters, to their wives, to their partners, to their mothers. I will not support you because I believe somebody else over those poor girls. That's what they're saying and it's just you know, like I say I have challenged a couple of people on it. I couldn't challenge all of them because it would be a full time job but you know it's it's people really need to think about what they're saying. If you don't know, don't speak about it. You know, have your opinion. Keep it in because you don't know what's going to, you know, what you're going to have to face in the future with the people that are in your life.
3: Hugh, you what? Do you believe the girls have told us here today that they believe there's at least eight victims? What do you think is Davy Tweed's legacy?
0: Well, I, I think what I keep speaking about the seven days that changed things, uh, and and the, the girls have correctly pointed out that this is what we know. Now it would. In my experience, it would be natural to assume that before the girls came along, there must have been other victims. That's a kind of, that's a kind of pattern. You don't suddenly wake up someday and decide to be a paedophile. There tends to be a build-up to it and then a period of a behaviour like that, criminal behaviour. It's, we only know this because the girls have found the courage to speak out. And this is going to be the legacy of David Tweed. Why I was interested and why I contacted Amanda was I could see what was happening. It was getting worse and worse as the, the days gone on between the accident and the funeral. He was going to be deified. He was going to be a saint, you know, by the time he was... But uh, Amanda had the courage and then the the girls in the course of that week spoke out and I think Sunday, last Sunday changed everything and here's a, here's a point that's worth remembering uh, a few weeks ago I had done an interview with a woman who had first interviewed 30 years ago and she wanted to speak out about her abuser and then suddenly she took cold feet which was fine and I told her when she's ready But having read the girl's story on Sunday, she found the courage to ring me on Saturday afternoon and say, I'm going for this. Come back and see me and I'll tell my story. Because she found courage in what the Tweed girls had said. Mm -hmm. So that's a good thing. But the whole world knows what now what Davy Tweed was. He wasn't the great international Irish rugby player. He was, of course. The the, the 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 records show that. He was the great international rugby player. He was the, the the great Ulster player. He was the man that stood at Drum Cree for whatever he believed in. But in reality, Davy Tweed was a paedophile and the whole world knows him. And
3: just maybe each of you, To finish, if there's something you want to say about Davy Tweed or about what you've done?
4: Um, I would think realistically at this stage I'm kind of sick talking about him specifically. Um, He doesn't deserve really much more airtime than he's already had. But if this does encourage anybody or inspire anybody to speak up, um, for years I thought I was the only one, and it turned out I wasn't. So if you're in a, in a similar situation, speak up. You will be believed. You will be. Do you know, We have challenged a giant, so we have, and we have been heard and we have been believed. So speak up. These people are normally in positions of power, of some sort. It's how they place themselves. So don't worry, you will be believed.
1: No, just exactly the same as what Amanda says. You know, you're not on your own. You know, there's people out there that will support you and will believe you. You know, and it's just taking that step. I know it's hard and that's probably one of the hardest things to do, but you will get there. We've got there finally. You know, we can actually sit and we've got the closure. Now, after all these years, and, yeah. yeah. Just don't give up.
2: Keep challenging everybody. Just don't give up on your battles. Yes,
4: it's probably this emotion and the not give up is in relation to the person that we lost. Um, and we lost her as a result of... The sexual abuse that she injured,
3: mm-hmm.
4: um, she, she didn't survive it. The mental illness that came from it, she didn't. She wasn't able to survive it. And it's been, you know, it's difficult for all of us and part of the reason why we still keep going and we have kept going, it's for her.
3: And you give one another strength.
4: Yeah, yeah.
3: When someone breaks down, someone else is there to hold out a hand.
4: Yep. But yeah, it's just, you know, it's it is unfortunate that she's not here to experience this.
3: Well, you're three very brave women. And I hope it does give you some sort of comfort to have come forward and as Hugh says give other people strength so thanks very much for talking to us
2: thank you thank you
3: you've been listening to Crime World a podcast from sundayworld.com produced by Ian Mullaney and edited by me, Nicola Talent. If you like the podcast and love true crime, why not download the free SundayWorld.com app for lots more stories from Ireland and across the globe.